Hey, everybody, this is Alex. Hey, it's Natasha. And we are here to talk just for a second about Extra Crunch, TechCrunch's subscription product. Extra Crunch is where a lot of our best analysis and follow-up stories lives. We focus a lot on startups, building, and even poke fun here and there. It's true. I also write a daily column called The Exchange that's over on Extra Crunch. And the good news is, if you don't have EC access yet, we have a deal for you. Yes, you can use, I think, the best code there is. So don't tell anyone who doesn't listen to Equity because they're not invited. The code is equity, all caps, for 50% off your Extra Crunch subscription. So head over to techcrunch.com slash subscribe. Use that code. Make us look good internally. We say thanks across the internet. And now let's do a show. Hello and welcome back to Equity, TechCrunch's venture capital-focused podcast where we unpack the numbers behind the headlines. My name is Alex Wilhelm and I am joined this week by two of my absolute faves. As always, I have Danny Crichton, one of TC's various editors, I think. Yes, I'm a various person. That's very true. We also have Natasha Mascarenas, who is back on the West Coast. So it's morning for you. How's it going? It is actually exciting to be with you guys in the morning because it means that my day can only go down from here. This oh, is the best I was like, that was a nice week. pause there. Is it going to go up or down from this point on? <laughs> no, 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 it goes down, but it's nice to start the day strong. <laughs> All right. Well, we have a great show for everyone today. We have a lot of stuff to get through. So if you wanted a big dose of tech news, we got you. We have some $1 billion funding rounds. We have some $1 billion exits. We have a $1 billion acquisition. We have a couple of things about booze. There's a couple of other funding rounds. Some of them are quite small. Don't worry. We do touch the early stage. And we're going to wrap up with a little bit on Miami, but not in a way that you're going to hate. Natasha, so I think we're going to start with Robinhood, yeah? Yeah, Robinhood definitely started the week strong with a, another announcement. This time it was that they added $2.4 billion in capital to its balance sheet, which for anyone who is with us last week knows that that's on top of an already $1 billion raise on Friday. Seeing that huge boost of capital from Robinhood in a handful of days had kind of split people's reactions. Some people saw it as FU money and some people saw it as, well, they're screwed. And now they're running to their investors. Also, sorry, that was definitely a curse word. It's early <laughs> here. Okay. So, so you, it's 11 a.m. here on the East Coast. I've had half a pot of coffee. I feel great. <laughs> Natasha has been awake for 17 minutes. And... <laughs> no, So I have a new kind of understanding of this whole Robin Hood thing that we've been talking about for so long and why they had to restrict trading. And we now better understand the fact that they just didn't have the capital they needed to put up the collateral for the trades their users were making. And so my new read of this whole situation, now that the company has shared more and they've raised more capital and they're back kind of where they should be, is that they just didn't get properly capitalized. They were undercapitalized and they screwed up. You know, it doesn't make them look particularly good. I hope $3.4 is enough. It was raised as a convertible note. So I presume this is kind of Danny some pre-IPO fundraising type thing that'll come in and they're going to discount to the, uh, the IPO price. Is that fair? Probably. I mean, it's clearly mezzanine capital. I mean, Robinhood was supposed to go public now-ish, yep. right? I mean, we were basically expecting it March, April. So, I mean, clearly the IPO is going to be pushed back, I think quite significantly just to allow everything to calm down a little bit. To me, I disagree that it was undercapitalized. I think it was efficiently capitalized and it was capitalized sufficiently to cover the daily trades that Robinhood sort of expected in the growth that they saw in users. I think no one expected in, you know, 24 hours to 48 hours to have tens and tens and tens of millions of shares of delinquent game retailer being traded. As a note today, GameStop is now down 85% from its peak last week. 
which is a pretty bad track record, I must say. That's not a gross stock. Danny, I agree with you in that I think it was efficiently capitalized, but I also think that we now know how unstable Robinhood is. Like, we can't unsee that. The fact that they needed to do that and pull off this huge raise shows that even a company that seemed really strong will have to hit that emergency button in this world. I'm going to be the rare voice of optimism here. I actually think it's an incredible story of resilience, which is imagine you're in a crisis and you call up your investors and they wire you $3.4 billion of debt and equity in like 72 hours. Your earliest like, investors do. It's and like, your earliest investors yeah. who probably have an SPV. I don't, we don't know exactly where the money precisely came from, but who cares? Like in the moment of need, billions of dollars showed up at the front door. And frankly, like similar to Plaid, which was going to merge with Visa for like $5.2 billion. It got blocked by the DOJ. And now the price has gone up by a lot on the private markets. I expect the exact same thing to happen in Robinhood by delaying its IPO and getting all this press attention from the GameStop situation, it's possible that Robinhood actually doubled its valuation in like two weeks, long term, like in the asymptote as it goes public in maybe a couple months or a year. This was maybe the best thing that ever happened to the company. That's a very optimistic take. And I hate to be the voice of pessimism and put on my, my Danny pants, but I'm not entirely sure efficiently capitalized is the right way to put it because they were so, so far underneath what they needed to have to support the trades that they could have seen coming to some degree. I mean, they didn't realize how much money they needed to have. So they weren't efficiently capitalized. They were unknowingly undercapitalized. And you can be polite about it or not, but I think we don't need to be polite to rich people. And on the question of why their investors put money in, well, we know, right? I mean, we just published their Q4 payment for order flow numbers. We know it was about 221.4 million, up from 182 million in Q3, 177 in Q2, and 90 in Q1. This is a company growing very quickly. It's a company that has a great track record of performance. And I think we all know that if you make money off of trades, Robinhood did pretty well in the last couple of weeks because everyone's been trading. So their investors aren't being generous or caring or kind or whatever. They're being greedy. They got convertible stock. They're going to make a ton of money off of this. So let's not give them, you know, a FET and let's not be nice to them. They're just being capitalists. There's a ton of folks who raise serious amounts of capital this week. One of the big companies, UiPath, which is in the always illuminating and exciting robotic process automation enterprise infrastructure space, woo, um, raised <laughs> $750 million at, get this, $35 billion. That's a real company that no one actually knows what it does. What it does is in companies that have a lot of paperwork, think of like inventory, supply chain management, financial reconciliation, all these processes that run our businesses are manual. You have to connect the paperwork into 10 different databases, super boring. Robotic process automation software or RPA basically automates that. It doesn't replace those solutions. So instead of like ripping out all of your systems from the last 40 years, all that COBOL code, it actually is like a layer on top of it to just kind of connect all that database together. Obviously, a huge market. UiPath is one of multiple companies in the space. The round was led by Alkion Capital, which I've never heard of before, and then Code2. So a bunch of private equity money pouring more capital into a startup. I mean, in this case, the only really other thing that I want to add is they didn't buy much of it. You know, 750 at a $35 billion valuation is a very small fraction of this business. So it shows a lot of confidence in the round. I was thought RPA was a kludge to get us to something else. It, but it's a, it's, it is a kludge. But the funny thing with enterprise IT is it takes decades to move stuff. So they have decades of potential to come through. And to give you a sense of this, the 750 million is a series F. Yeah. The company has raised about 2 billion from inception. So th this is almost half of all of its capital raise. And it just gave up, I guess, what, 2-3% yeah. of the company yeah, yeah, yeah. in order to, to get that amount of money. I mean, that's the level of like, control and fine tuning these companies have over their cap tables. Yeah, they should just go public enough of this crap. Let's talk about a Series G round. Databricks raised $1 billion at a $28 billion valuation 
which is less than 35 billion. It's true. And this week, that completely rains on its parade. <laughs> but Alex, tell us what. What, what a to... bunch of losers over there at the $28 yeah. billion dollar company. 28, that's worth 28 nothing. billion's chump change. Three journalists said as their last word. I'm worth $28, I'll have you know. No, I'm going to get. <laughs> Kayana from Databricks is going to text me now. Okay, so Databricks raised a billion at a $28 billion post. I presume that means $27 billion pre. It's a lot of money. I mean, keep in mind that in, I think it was like 2017, Databricks raised 140 at about a $1 billion valuation. So we've seen an enormous growth in this company's valuation. We also know a bit about its historical growth. We knew that it was about at a $350 million run rate at the end of Q3. It was about a $200 million run rate Q3 19. And it's now at about a $425 million ARR slash run rate. So fast growth, real scale, a relatively high ARR multiple today. The CEO isn't too worried about it. I talked to one of their investors, also not worried about it. There's a lot of optimism in this company for a couple of reasons. Product, it does analytics and AI on top of big buckets of data. And as we've seen with companies like Snowflake, making large buckets of data, very popular. So the data market seems to be very, very hot and very active. And actually, I've got a couple of rounds next week for smaller companies in the data space that I'm pretty excited about. And, you know, guys, it's going to go public this year and it's going to be fun. I'm just curious to see at what price and if they nailed this kind of Series G evaluation. Danny, how does it make you feel? Well, I mean, obviously the performance is incredible. and We've seen this in Snowflake. We've seen this in a lot of the other data infrastructure companies. I mean, look, big data happened in the enterprise, right? And so every company has had to put in place this infrastructure. Now, with Databricks, I went to their website to literally copy and paste what they describe what they do. And what they say they do is they combine the best of data warehouses and data lakes into a lake house architecture. And I've got to be honest, I know what a data warehouse is. I know what a data lake yes. is. I have no idea what lake house architecture is other than something I've seen in Architectural Digest. So I talked to the CEO, Ali, about this. And looking at my notes, I'm reading kind of from my crappy typed notes. I think lake house is something that they've invented. Like it's a branding thing. Like data okay. lake as like an idea. They're trying to create this new concept called lake house, which is a little bit... <laughs> Endearing? Pros prosaic? <laughs> oh, okay. I'll take endearing. Is that because it's bricked is in the names? Here's the direct quote from my notes. Also new category called Lake House. Build on data lakes. Let people run their own AI. Establish that category. Investments there. Because I, I was curious what they're going to do with the billion dollars. They're going to go buy some companies and they're going to try to make Lake House this brand that everyone knows about, like customer success, like something like, something like that. Who knows if it'll work out? Let's not stay on this too long. Franklin Templeton led the round. Fidelity was in there. Whale Rock. It's a bunch of private money. Also, AWS, Capital G, Salesforce, and Microsoft were in the round. Essentially, everyone is putting money into this company because they serve a lot of the customers that use large public clouds. So every public cloud wants to ensure that Databricks is cool with them. And, uh, you know, it's, it's a cool company, but let's not over-index on it. Let's move on. There's a lot of other stuff going on, including a dating app going public. I feel like no one here is really into dating apps on this show. So we don't have like these hot takes, but I'm surprised that there's enough room in the market for both Bumble and the broader match group to go public because Danny VCs have famously said forever that there was no room in the dating market for a, a big company. And they were kind of wrong. The old rule was there's only one exit and it was to one company, which was match group, which is owned by IAC. Was owned. Was owned. And, you know, there was no exit market because there's no competition for those exit valuations. The valuations were terrible because there's only one buyer of the market. So Bumble is, I believe, the very first, or at least in the modern world, the very first company to prove that you can actually go public around dating and it actually works which is actually pretty incredible. Natasha, we have a bunch of numbers here. I mean, it, it seems like they're doing super well. Bumble could be worth between 3 and $3.25 when it debuts. Something that people probably know, but just to reiterate, Bumble is a relationship-finding service where women reach out first. 
They've also done things like Bumble networking, and they've definitely worked a lot on their marketing arm in a way that makes me feel like they're going to be a consumer social media company of sorts. That was actually my big question. What is it going to mean for it to be a meaningful exit? Because as you guys said, there's no benchmarks. And so when does it cross the line of being meaningful versus not meaningful? I want to go back to the valuation thing just for a second, because Natasha is correct that if you read the S1 filing, the shares expected to be in circulation at the time of the IPO is about 108 million, a valuation of around 3 to 3.25 billion. It's hard to calculate the fully diluted valuation for this company if you want to get into the weeds of it, because... There was a majority sale, the CEO. Whitney Wolf heard. Uh, she owns a chunk of it, but like there was a big transaction. So the cap table is like a huge mess. And so figuring out exactly how many shares will be fully vested and therefore eligible for inclusion in a fully diluted share count was tricky. If I did it correctly, it could be worth about $6 billion at that fully diluted share count. So a little hard to nail down the price, but uh, it's, it's worth a lot of money. And what's nuts to me is despite the pandemic and the idea that, at least from my perspective, no one would actually leave to go on a date outside of their homes. The company's actually done an enormous amount of revenue this year. So according to its filings, if you look at Q1, Q2, Q3, and then kind of project forward through Q4, the company could actually hit $550 million in top-line revenues in 2020, which to me is an insane amount of money. On the flip side, I mean, given their valuation, whether it's $3 billion or $6 billion, $500 million in top-line revenue to a 3 to $6 billion valuation actually isn't that great. In some ways of thinking, even though the exit market is proving the dating can go IPO, on a multiples perspective, when we're used to 60 to 120x multiples in the SaaS world, to see a company that only gets 12 to maybe 24x at this stage, to me, is a little bit surprising. Slower growth, not as profitable. You're not selling to enterprise companies, you're selling to individuals. I presume there's higher churn. People do sometimes find a partner and then keep them. And then you're probably off of, well, you should be off of Bumble at that point. If you're not, you kind of suck. Uh, unless your marriage is fine with that, then you're fine. I don't mean to be judgy. This is not going well. We love that. Anyway, <laughs> you ever just keep having to add caveats to your statement and yeah. realize you're just Taking slowly, yourself deeper. Yeah, you're, there's, there's no way out. But here's my thought about this. I was originally optimistic about the idea of like, oh, Bumble went public, therefore there's room for dating apps in the market. I don't think so. I think there's room for a very niche dating app that targets specific parts of the population, which could be great businesses, but they're not probably like IPO scale. But I think we probably have all the like the big ones we're going to have because, you know, how, how do you hit network effects again in the dating world if you have Bumble and you have Tinder and you have Hinge and then the other one? Okay, Cupid. There you go. God. <laughs> do you, I think that Gen Z will use all the exact same tools? No, I don't. I actually think there's an immense amount of innovation. I think there's a place that constantly turns over as new people come on. Because again, as you pointed out, there's a whole new group of users every single time. Right. Every 10 years, yeah. it's a completely fresh new user base that's coming through. So every generation can be refreshed. So there's another company that could come up and make a multi-billion dollar exit here. That's what makes it super exciting. But I do want to move us on to the other half of dating or the most important lubricant to dating, at least for some folks, which is alcohol. And uh, a major acquisition this week in that space. Natasha, tell us more. This was exciting to see. So Uber announced that it's buying Boston-based Drizzly, which delivers alcohol for $1.1 billion in a mix of stock and cash. And so imagine Drizzly's alcohol delivery merging directly into Uber Eats, which we have all known it has been doing pretty well during the pandemic. And Drizzly had a great exit. I mean, it raised under 120 million to date, and it's a big move for the alcohol delivery space. What's interesting is it's a cash and stock transaction, right? And so Uber itself has had a tremendously good year from the low points of the pandemic where the stock basically collapsed as no one was moving around in March, April. It's actually up 4x or so from its 52-week lows. So 
the company's buying into this, right? And I, I think Drizzly, if you combine it with Uber Eats and start to imagine a world in which like, I'm going to buy my taco and I'm also going to buy a bottle of wine and combine that together, you get bigger basket sizes. It'll be more efficient. I don't know what some of the legal regulatory issues around that could be. Do you need a liquor license to sell like a bottle of alcohol through like a delivery app like this? Yeah, you need to have a license if you're going to sell it with tacos. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I know in the store. Anyway, I, I'm going to deliver tequila and ice cream and then whiskey and oatmeal. <laughs> <laughs> to me, there's an amazing success story. It's an obvious connection. And once you've acquired the customer for Uber Eats, like all these businesses, Drizzly fights in a very competitive alcohol delivery market where cost of acquiring a customer is extremely expensive. So when you can bind the two together and knock out those marketing costs, that's a win-win for everyone. And I have to say, Drizzly had a great brand before the Uber acquisition. I remember that was the first startup that could. I remember when I was in college and I found out that Drizzly was a thing. I was super <laughs> amped because, you know, it felt like the first one that really was doing it. And it wasn't super hard to get alcohol to your doorstep. And we've known for a long time that Uber Eats is where Uber makes a lot of its money. And so it makes sense for that reason the reason it was so easy is because they didn't check id at the door um <laughs> <that's> what... <laughs> natasha broke the law <laughs> i'm not gonna remember that danny's point though about the share price of uber is very important because if it goes up dramatically they have a lot more money to play with they can make deals like this relatively inexpensively i'll just say though that we are looking at uber's q4 earnings coming out on february 10th so just a couple of days from now and I have a suspicion that Uber is writing themselves a neat narrative to tell investors, because if the numbers aren't statically great, they can say, but guys, look, Drizzly, we're going to have a whole new product line, very high margin, big baskets, lots of great stuff coming down the road. Please don't sell our stock. It's a great way to keep all of that going. But let's stick to alcohol and move on to a round that I don't understand, Danny, and I need you to explain to me. Why does Vivino, a formerly Danish wine rating check-in thing, need $155 million? I, I'm perplexed by this. I mean, first of all, as a sophisticated wine drinker who doesn't like sommeliers, Vivino is an amazing tool. They raised a Series C. Actually, not that long ago, I remember the press release swinging by my inbox and being like, I just want free credits to Vivino. Not that I take free credits. But the key here, I think, is twofold. One is Vivino is becoming the default app for wine, and wine is one of the largest parts of the alcohol market, far larger than hard liquors, far larger than almost anything else. And so it, it has a massive transaction platform. It's also a really technology-focused company. So the reason I use it so much is when I go to the wine store, you can scan the bottles of wine using your camera, and it'll automatically scan the label. It automatically scans the year, the vintage year for the wine. And it'll give you the ratings from other people, it'll give you tasting notes, it'll give you like, if you like this, you'll like that. It's actually an amazing hybrid retail and online experience. Then once you find the bottles you like, you can buy it online. And the key here is wine can be very expensive. I think one of the tricks to this market, unlike Drizzly, which has a college student market, that's one of the reasons I think it's actually got started in Boston is because Boston's one of the major hubs of colleges. And drinking. And drinking. <laughs> Certainly when the Patriots are playing. But one of the things that comes out of this is like, from a branding perspective, you're getting a much more sophisticated and I think expensive customer. They're willing to spend a lot of money. You buy $100 bottles of wine, you buy cases of hundreds of dollars of bottles of wine. You know, on Drizzly, it's all about price. And on Favino, it's about taste and flavor and matching the mood and all that. And all that is like a more premium experience. So raised $155 million from Kinovic, which is a European growth investor. $221 million raised to date. So obviously a huge chunk of its total funding with this Series D. And its user base, according to the numbers we have, grew from $21 million in 2018 to $50 million today. So that's $50 million. And to compare, last July, Grizzly had a leak of its data, and they had to announce it to about 2.5 million people. So that's sort of the guideline in terms of users. So Vivino is almost 20x the size, if you believe some of those numbers, with a higher price point for each, more transaction volume, 
And wine drinkers drink a hell of a lot more than almost any other drinkers out there. I want to go back to the company's Series C, first of all. It was $20 million back in February of 2018. So that shows you how much bigger this round is than their preceding investment. And then if you go all the way back to the Series A for Vivino, it was July of 2013. I looked at who was in it and Creandum was in it. And I happened to know that firm a little bit because I talked to one of their investors for some interview thing I did a little bit ago. And I, I think they're pretty smart. So I was curious why they put money into this company early on. And they said, you know, we believe this company will provide a platform for Vivino to revolutionize wine e-commerce on a global scale. So like global aspirations from the Series A through now, I think they're in like 17 countries to date and they're going to keep expanding that. So the amount of money, a little bit perplexing, but I, I get the overall pitch. And if it has Danny and his family as customers, then they'll be fine. <laughs> I'm going to do one more number and then we're going to move on to another company. The company only has, according to the CEO, 200 people employed, which when you think about it, $155 million in capital for 200 people is actually like an astonishing level of leverage. We've seen this a little bit with maybe Notion and some others, but like a very rare level of scale there. But I think that's enough on alcohol. Obviously, with home deliveries, we have to go home, which means you want to own a place. And in order to own a place, you need better ways to finance because home prices are super expensive today. And so we have a huge round from Divi which is the last massive round we're going to talk about on this podcast. But Natasha, tell us a little bit more about what's going on at Divi Homes. Divi is a real estate tech startup. It basically helps people buy homes. The person picks a home they want, Divi buys it for them, and then rents it back to them while they build their equity. They closed $110 million in Series C funding from a number of the investors we all know and have thoughts about, including Andreessen Horowitz, Tiger Global. And now they have over $500 million since beginning in 2017. Wow. So, I mean, a really strong capital raise, and it's never made more sense to buy a home to a lot of people. So we see a very obvious COVID narrative yet again. I thought you were going to say investors we know and love, and I was going to be like, oh, contraire. And then you <laughs> came up with have thoughts about it. I'm like, that's a much better way to end that sentence. There's a couple cool bits of Divi's story that are very startup loved. One is that Divi was incubated in Max Levchin's startup studio. So that's pretty damn cool. And over the course of last year, they expanded from eight to 16 markets and got five times as many homes as it did in pre-pandemic times. So we see the really exciting early incubation turning into this pandemic growth. I don't know. What do you guys think? Do you think that this is a pandemic boom similar that we're seeing to EdTech where people are like, all right. The moment it's okay, people are not going to be learning online. Is the moment things are okay, people are no longer going to buy homes? Obviously, with the pandemic this year, one of the surprises has been home sales. I mean, existing home sales are up. I believe it's actually like a 17-year high, some crazy number, particularly in certain very, very hot markets. And, and presumably, Divi's next eight markets, its marginal markets it's choosing, are going to be those markets. But to me, the longer-term story here, outside of the pandemic, is simply housing prices. It's getting so hard to buy into homes using a traditional 30-year fixed mortgage that Divi's model of allowing you to basically put a very small down payment, it's sort of a rent-to-own scheme. And we've seen that in countries like uh, the UK, around the world. The US actually pioneered a little bit of this in the 60s and 70s before Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac uh, made the 30-year fixed the majority of the market. To me, it's like a back-to-the-future model of home ownership. As long as it provides, I think, more and more people access to home equity and the power of owning your own home, I think it's great. As a data point for everyone who's not trapped in one of these real estate markets, here, here's how it kind of looks on the ground in Providence, Rhode Island, where I am. I grabbed some data. The uh, The median sale price for a home in 2016 was, you know, about 150, give or take. And now it's about 300. So in five years, it's doubled. And instead of seeing during a recession and a pandemic, house prices go down, they went up rather steeply. So it's a very interesting moment. Money is cheap. Going to be fun to see how Divi does in this market and then also later on when rates are different. But we'll get to that. We are going to talk instead about get another Max Levchin thing. 
This time though, Danny, we're not doing consumer payments. We're not doing the Venmos of the world. We're doing the enterprise version of that, I think. Yes. So Max Levchin and Lightspeed and Lightspeed back, Max Levchin's a firm. So it's all in the family, so to speak. Back to a company called Balance. So Balance is focused on B2B payments. So you're probably familiar with Stripe or PayPal. Easy, you use a credit card, buy stuff online. If you're a business, this is much less practical. Let's say you're buying a, an enterprise site license to a software company and you have 20,000 seats. You're going to spend a million dollars. No one puts that on their Amex, except for some people, and that's obnoxious. And so businesses need not only different payment methods, including check, ACH, direct bank wires, etc. They also need payment terms. So net 30, net 60, they need to finance that. All that's super complicated today. It's all manual. Balance wants to make that completely online, safe, easy, synchronized, all the nice magic buzzwords. It's actually built on Stripe. I think it's easy to say it's a Stripe competitor. It's not a Stripe competitor. It's actually built on Stripe, but it augments Stripe with a bunch of other features, which is why Stripe was also part of the round. You know, this is one of those moments in which corporate venture capital makes a lot of sense. Like here's Stripe ensuring that if balance goes big, it's built on their framework, pushing more overall GMV through Stripe's network. And, you know, corporate payments can be rather large. It's bigger than sending your friend $10 from, you know, your wine and tacos breakfast. This could be a rather large amount of money. And so for Stripe, if they want volume, and they do, it's a great thing to do. And, you know, we're seeing Stripe be pretty aggressive with its corporate venture money. Two things. Stripe and Platter are like not so quietly building these businesses on top of its platform. And I wonder how long it's going to be before we see the first billion dollar company built on top of these platforms. Last week, we talked a little bit about platform risk. And so that's definitely something that these startups need to think about. But another bit, just to show you how close knit the fintech world is, is that Max Lefton, obviously co-founder of PayPal, Balance was founded by two former PayPal employees. And so PayPal is a big part of the story. And it kind of checks every box that gets you fintech funding these days, it seems. Not to slam on its business. I just think it is really interesting to see how much the tentacles are intertwined. Lots of cool stuff on Balance. We have three more rounds and a city to go. So I want us to do a quick lightning round of a couple other stories going on. The first one is a company called Alloy, which is also in the B2B space. Alex, tell us a little bit about them. Really brief. Alloy Automation, two very interesting founders. I talked to them and I really dug their round. They've raised a total of $5 million, including most recently a $4 million round. 16 pre, 20 post. Cool of them to share that. Thanks, guys, for actually giving us information. Uh, it's lovely. <laughs> yeah, and, uh, we love that. Round was led by Bain Capital Ventures and Abstract. Also money in this from Color Capital, Box Group, and a bunch of individual investors, including Shippo's Laura Barron's Wu, part of the YC Winter 2020 cohort. What does it do? It does, you know how Zapier lets you connect apps together and do kind of lightweight consumer automation? And then MuleSoft does like super deep enterprise versions of that. They sit in between targeting e-commerce companies. So they do app automation for e-commerce companies. Think like if you ship a good, your fulfillment software could tell your SMS software to text the customer that they got a package shipped. Stuff like that. Stuff that people who run small e-commerce businesses on Shopify and big commerce can't code themselves. And so they provide the connections there. Super cool company. I think it's going to do well. So I'm excited to watch it grow over the next uh, couple quarters, Danny. Absolutely. And then another company, Beam, that's B-E-A-M, in the web browser space, which we've talked about a couple of different times, raised $9.5 million to basically, I'm describing it as Rome research meets web browser. But the idea is to turn your useless browsing sessions, which I think we're all familiar with, in which you have 50 tabs and you don't remember anything you read, nothing comes up, and basically turn that into notes, things you can learn more about. It was led by Pace Capital, founded by a couple of founders who are trying to do more valuable things. And it seems to be an interesting new take on the web browser experience. All right, and we're going to do one more thing here. We have Expectful's really interesting company, Natasha. I want you to tell us why this founder is so neat and what she's building. 
I profiled Expectful's new CEO, Natalie Walton, who had previously worked at Airbnb, eBay, and actually turned down an offer from Amazon to take over this early stage startup. Expectful is a meditation app for new mothers. Broad definition of mothers, thinking anyone who can raise a child or who has raised a child. And they're looking to expand into a marketplace. We've seen a couple other companies trying to work with the mom economy, like Mommy and Peanut. So expect expectable in that bucket. The total financing they have to date is 4.2 million and they are profitable. So we love that. Awesome. Let's end with Miami because we have avoided talking about that on this podcast. Maybe not avoided, but it hasn't come up. And this week or Friday gave us a reason to talk about it on equity. SoftBank earmarked $100 million in funding for Miami-based startups. They didn't create a Miami fund, but they allocated money from all their existing funds and are putting $100 million into Miami-based startups or startups that are planning to move to Miami. Can we get the sad trombone sound effect in here, Grace? Is that possible to do? <laughs> oh, no. Why? Because, I mean, like, okay, first of all, SoftBank apparently always has $100 million somewhere to do something with. Very jealous of that fact. And two, they didn't actually do anything. What they've done is decided to possibly in the future use some of the money they were going to invest anyways, maybe in some Miami startups. To me, this is like the ultimate clout chasing. This is like the Miami mayor taking pictures with, um, who's that VC who's really dorky on Twitter and no one likes? I'm not going to say that. SoftBank's $5 billion Latin American fund is also based, I guess, in Miami. And then you're thinking of a bunch of folks who have shown up into the ecosystem, including Dave Bloomberg. Chris Dixon of Andreessen and Horowitz and Keith Raboy of Founders Fund. There you go. And then lastly, we had some numbers about Miami. So the region saw about $2 billion of venture capital pour into the market, up from 90 million bucks 10 years ago. <laughs> it's like a glorified seed round uh, uh, just a decade ago. But a serious amount of money really showing up. And a couple of standout deals. Natasha, I think we have a list of a couple of the deals that have done well. Yeah. So we have Reef Technology, raised 700 million. Shipmunk, 290 million. Magic Leap, 350 million. Magic Leap's in Miami. I thought they were in that horrible plantation, Florida, or something like that. Well, Miami region, which is really the Southeast, because that's the level of resolution we have. That's how much we focus on this region. We will get better on that, though, as we do more work. To end it off on some optimism... While all they did is earmark, this is a symbol and local investors have seen it as such. This is a signal that at least one big, big firm that doesn't have to is making a statement about pouring money into Miami. And local investors are actually happy that they can finally have some energy back in the market. And we've certainly seen a lot of statements from people who have money about Miami. Let's see what those come into. But we are way over time. So we're going to wrap it up. Danny, Natasha, Grace, the whole equity crew. We say hello. And now we say goodbye. See ya. <laughs>